Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jett. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Faye A. Yarbrough, a professor of history at Rice University. Professor Yarbrough's research interests focus on the native populations of the southeastern United States and Indian Territory during the 19th century. She is particularly interested in the interactions between indigenous peoples and people of African descent. Her first book, Race and the Cherokee Nation, Sovereignty in the 19th Century, explores the complex relationship between the construction of sexual boundaries and the formation of tribal and racial identities. The study analyzes how Cherokee lawmakers used marriage laws to construct conceptions of race and gender in the face of Andrew Jackson's Indian policies and how the Civil War and Reconstruction reconfigured the thinking of Cherokee legislatures. Today, we're talking about her most recent book, Choctaw Confederates, The American Civil War in Indian Country, published by UNC Press in 2021. This book is an engaging history of the Choctaw people from their resettlement in present-day Oklahoma in the 1830s through the Civil War and Reconstruction. Professor Yarbrough provides some insight into why the Choctaw and other Native peoples in Indian country decided to cast their lot with the Confederacy during the Civil War and foregrounds Native experiences during the Civil War and Reconstruction. Dr. Yarbrough, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, uh, what first brought this book to my attention uh, was that it, it, it goes so far beyond what people usually think of when they think about Civil War histories. Um, and so if I could just generalize for a second, to me, it seems like people usually think of the Civil War in very specific ways. Um, it's, it's kind of northern white men fighting against southern white men in places like Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, maybe Louisiana a little bit, and once up in Pennsylvania. And a, lar- a lot of these these battles um, and the larger confrontation over over um, slavery uh, was bound up in white people's understanding of the role of African descendant peoples in the United States. And your book kind of upends all of that in really fascinating um, and engaging ways in that you're talking about how Native peoples uh, interacted with the debates surrounding slavery, um, how they they engaged with the Civil War and Reconstruction. So not only are you adding a new group of people into the mix, you also look at the Civil War in present day Oklahoma, which, again, kind of stretches these geographic boundaries of what we typically conceive of as the South or the theater of the Civil War. So I think you just really blew all of of my preconceived notions about the Civil War um, out of the water. And so I say all of that to, to, to ask you this. Where in the world did you come up with this this kind of study and this kind of idea about about engaging with Native Americans interactions with enslaved enslaved people and slavery and also um, the Civil War and Reconstruction more broadly? So, um, well, first, thank you for all of those kind words. It's really heartening to hear that um, some of the goals that I had for this project are, in fact, what readers are getting out of it. You, you know, you put a lot of time and effort into a project and send it out into the world, and you're never quite sure what people are going to take from it. So this is really gratifying. Um, so I would say the long story of how I got into this project, and I'm 
I'm apologizing up front. It is a long story. <laughs> oh, that's okay. We we like long stories on here. Right. Um, is that things began, this project really began um, in the archives. So when I was working on my dissertation, which became um, that first book, Race and the Cherokee Nation, I was in the archives in Oklahoma City, and uh, I met a woman, Mildred Brown, who was a volunteer archivist there. And she saw me coming in day after day, sitting in front of the microfilm reader, scrolling through um, roll after roll of microfilm. And she stopped me one day and she said, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you working on? <laughs> As all but, good archivists will, right? Yeah, right. And she um, noticed me because she said, you, you must not be doing family research, right? Most of the people who go to the Oklahoma Historical um, Society's archive are doing genealogical research on their families. And, you know, she'd volunteered there for a, for a while. And, and she said, you don't seem like you're doing that. And I, I told her what I was working on. And she immediately said, oh, you should write about my family. <laughs> right. Which you, actually you'd be surprised working on the topics that I do, how often people tell me, want to tell me about their really? family. Yeah. They, I'm, frequently people want to tell me about their family. Is that a fantastic, a fantastic problem to have so many people wanting to tell you their family histories or does it become kind of a burden almost? Well, it, it's a burden in that sometimes they tell me histories that based on what I know about the historical record may not be entirely true. And I don't want to be the person to say, oh, I don't think that's how that happened. So, right, right. So I was, you know, but that was, I was a graduate student and, you know, I was intrigued. And so she starts telling me about her family. Um, Mildred Brown is a descendant of a family that um, Dan Littlefield has written about in which um, part of the um, family uh, is descended from um, uh is of native and white ancestry. And then another part of the family, um, the, the father after the death of the native mother, uh, had children with an enslaved woman and, but, but then attempted to free those children, took them out of state to have them declared free, et cetera. But when he, um, dies, the native, the Choctaw and white children attempt to have their half siblings re-enslaved. Right? Oh my goodness. Right. And so she tells me That's this story. family history right there. Right? And it, I was amazed and she was really generous and she gave me all of these materials that she had collected over time. I, I think part of her reason for volunteering in the archive was to be able to conduct her own family research. Right. And so she um, gives let me photocopy all of these records. And I actually thought I was embarking on a project to think about memory in a more concrete way, because as I said, she was a descendant of the, of the Choctaw and white side of the, of the beams family. That's their last, the, her ancestors are the beams. And she had met someone who was a descendant of the Choctaw and African side of the family. And, um, you know, they had talked and, I was really interested in thinking about talking to both of these women and asking how their families talked about this history, right? So I, I imagined a really concrete way to think about memory and talk about memory, and and that was the goal. So I, after I finished my dissertation, I'm in the archives, you know, doing work to revise the dissertation to become a book manuscript. 
And also then embarking on this new project and thinking, okay, well, I'm going to look at the Choctaw Nation and let's look at legislative documents and see what's happening. And I find this uh, piece of legislation in which Choctaw legislators are saying they want to uh, declare any statement made against the Confederacy treason and treason is punishable by death, right? And so it was a, this, you know, you find this piece of legislation recorded in, you know, this 19th century script and it made me pause. Wow, really? <laughs> You're so committed to the Confederacy that you, you want to declare saying something negative about the Confederate army treason and treason is punishable by death. So I fell into this other rabbit hole of why? What, what is so appealing about um, the Confederacy or Confederate ideology that, that you would um, support the Confederacy a few short decades after those very same people were pushing you out of the Southeast and into Indian territory? So I'm, I'm embarrassed to Miss, Miss Brown to say that I actually didn't end up thinking about her family so much in writing that story, but this just took me in a different direction of then thinking about, okay, what does this participation mean? How do they come to this decision, right? So that led to, you, you know, the chapters in the book that are about thinking about slavery and what it looked like in the Choctaw Nation, thinking about the process of arriving to this decision to side with the Confederacy, then trying to figure out what that military experience was like, right? And, and then what Reconstruction looked like. So that's the long story of how I, I um, came to this project. It's really Miss, Miss Mildred Brown, she's in Oklahoma, stopping me in the archive and saying, oh, but you should write about my family. Right. That's and then, absolutely wonderful. Right. Giving me this treasure trove of, of documents. Yeah, it, it was really um, generous of her and fortuitous. And sometimes when I talk to my students about um, what I like about being a historian and what's um, appealing to me, it's it's the personal. It's the the individual stories. It's the fact that you can see how those stories have an impact on where we are now right but it was really grew out of just you know that really simple question from her yeah and you know i think it's so funny how many big time history books and important works grow out of uh conversations with archivists you know i think we all had that experience where we go into the archives expecting to look for be interested in one thing and we had this one one-off conversation perhaps with an archivist who you know have spent significant chunks of their lives cultivating these collections uh and all of a sudden they just launch us down down these other tracks and i think that's one of the really amazing things about talking to historians about their work and even archivists about their work too uh is just how these collaborative things really kind of emerge um i always find that interesting so uh and to be fair that story was not all that long i was a little worried you were going to going to go into like the 30 or 40 minute mark but yeah a 7 minute story about the 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 birth of a book is absolutely fantastic and you brought up a point that 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 really drew me in um well there were a couple of points you brought up that really drew me in um the first is is how you start i think it's the first chapter of the introduction and you have this quote by um it's peter pitchlin um and and you make the claim that that in many cases the choctaw were more committed to the confederate 
cause than the white Southerners were. Um, and I remember reading that and thinking, oh my gosh, now I have to finish the rest of this book, right? Like I can't skim this. I need to know why they were more committed to, to the Confederate cause than white Southerners in many cases. And so I guess I'll ask the question that I'm assuming is on everybody's minds uh, who buys your book or listens to, to this interview. Why in the world did the Choctaw and other Native American groups side with the Confederacy? It seemingly just goes against everything we assume uh, about about white Southerners relationships with with non-white people um, and and the flip side of that. So could you just elaborate a little bit and and answer that that one question that I know everybody's going to want an answer to? What in the heck happened there? Yeah, so I I uh, make the argument that there are two parts to this answer of why Choctaws would side with Confederates. So one part is they are slaveholders, and they you know slaveholding is a part of their economy. Um, in some ways, it's a little bit different in terms of um, uh, the the prime crop being grown. Choctaws place more value in and these. Um, natives in Indian territory who are engaged in large plantation agriculture, uh, put more resources in the growing of corn than, than white Southerners do. So, you know, the, the mix of how they're growing things is a little bit different, but they are also growing cotton and they're growing it for, for the market. So there's the element of, of slavery and, um, their, commitment to a particular social order that comes out of the enslavement of people of African descent, right? So they're um, passing laws that um, clearly disadvantage people of African descent, right? So there's that part of the story that's, that's more familiar. The other part of the story is that the um, Choctaw nation is interested in protecting sovereignty. They're interested in protective, protecting native sovereignty. And they see the Confederates as the uh, their best bet in terms of protecting Native sovereignty. So when um, sometimes I make this joke that some that we all uh, historians of the American South, but U.S. historians in general, when we talk about the causes of the Civil War, and we point to um, slavery, and we say. Right. It's states when when Southerners say it's about states rights, it's about states rights to protect slavery. I argue that Choctaws hear states rights and they're equating it to native sovereignty. And they they are believing that states rights is a a real and important part of, of the reason to support the war. Right. How can people who espouse um, a commitment to states rights then not recognize and um, respect native rights to sovereignty, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that they are making this equation and, and also that Southerners are continuing to make promises that that's what they're going to do. And they're making promises about um, what they're going to pay for in terms of the war f- mm-hmm. effort, right? That they're going to reimburse the Choctaws for this, that they are going to honor all of the commitments that the federal government has made in terms of respecting sovereignty, but also in terms of financial obligations that they have, right? That the um, Choctaw nation already has plenty of evidence and these other native nations have plenty of evidence that the federal government is not going to honor past treaties, but here these, um, Southern uh, lawmakers and emissaries that are sent out are saying, no, but we will right. honor those treaty obligations. We're going to um, make 
these financial commitments. We're going to honor these financial commitments. Um, the Confederate government and their um, emissaries also um, have uh, no, are recognized that that um, the Choctaws and other Native nations that they're the funds that they've received from land sales in the past are invested in Southern businesses, right? Right, And then the, the agents that the federal government has been sending to these Native nations, many of them are from the South, right? So there are all these, these um, factors that are, that are pushing them, right, to side with the South. And then if you think about the practice of slavery, selling, buying and selling slaves and cotton in Southern markets, right? marrying um, white Southerners, right? So there are those kinds of ties that are connecting people. There's the promises that the Confederate government is making about honoring sovereignty. There, um, the I would argue that the Choctaws also connect their identity to their ability to maintain sovereignty, right? That they also are trying to maintain them, their identity as a, as a people. Mm-hmm. So all of these things seem like they're going to happen if they side with the Confederacy. And of course the Confederacy is, is putting pressure on them. There are people from Texas and Arkansas who are making incursions and making demands of the native nations to side with the Confederacy. But I, I would argue that the Choctaws have incentive on their own without, even without those pressures to side with the South in the war. And it makes absolutely perfect sense to them to do it. Yeah, I mean, you bring this up several times in the book. One, slavery was an institution that they were very familiar with. It had been around um, for quite some time. And that's something I'd like to come back to in just a moment. But um, you raise an interesting point, suggesting that that they thought they'd be better off casting their lot with the Confederates, that they would protect those claims to sovereignty. Um, and and in the book, you, you bring up the fact that, as you briefly mentioned here, they are from the South. They live in the South. They have familiarity with white Southerners. Um, do you think this was also about just kind of thumbing their nose at the at the federal government also um, and, and, and maybe seeing them as as the perpetrators of all of those problems that had had befallen? Uh, the Choctaw people before, because you bring up in the book that, yes, uh, the federal government has a policy of, of, of Indian removal, but it's also happening at the state level, too, uh, where state actors are also pushing Native peoples off their land. So do you think that 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 there was just more of a distrust of the federal government um, or was it that that they felt more connected and tied to the Confederacy or just an element maybe of both? I think it has to be both. I think that they, again, they do have already a proven track record of the federal government not honoring treaties. And they don't even have to only look at their own treaties. They can look at other Native nations and see, oh, yeah, the federal government lies to you, too. Right. So I think there's that. I think I think there are, again, there, as I talk about in the book, there are all these cultural and economic ties with the Confederacy. And again, the Confederacy is making all of these promises. We can, I think you can debate whether or not the Confederacy is being honest in their making Mm -hmm. of these promises, right? But they are making all of these promises to these Native nations about what they're going to honor, what they're going to do. There's a way in which um, sometimes I, I think that the Choctaws and other Native nations are really optimistic, right? Because they're... 
they're they're willing to try again. Okay, maybe this time they will honor these um, agreements. Maybe this time they are going to honor our claims to sovereignty. So I think there's an element of both of those things at play, you know, the ties that they're forging with Southerners, but also, again, this track record of the federal government just over and over again falling short of its commitments, falling short of the promises that they, they've made mm-hmm. um, to Native peoples. And so if I could just kind of flip the script a little bit, um, why were the Confederates so interested in in having Choctaw and other Native nations ally with them? And and I guess the flip side would also be, why was the federal government also interested in, in courting um, these Native nations? Well, part of the problem is for the Southerners is geography, and they're nervous about Indian territory, right? Present day Oklahoma. If this is, uh, you know, a, a territory that sides with the Union, it's making an incursion into into Southern territory. And what could the federal government do if they're using that as a base of operations and and fanning out into the South, right? So there's the strategic strategic importance of the area. And um, the you you could argue that initially the federal government is not so interested because they pull troops out, right? Mm-hmm, like they mm-hmm. pull they pull back in Indian territory, and later after the war, you'll see some of the rhetoric among the Choctaws change to say, well, but what could we have done? The federal government abandoned us, right? So the federal government. Um, sends resources elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's also the part of the the equation is that the Confederate army is there, the Confederate government is there saying, please, please, please join us, join us, join us. We'll give you all of these things. Right. At the same moment that the federal government is pulling resources away. And so you can imagine from the perspective of a lot of these of these native nations that they're saying, well, yeah, actually, the Confederate government is more interested in us. Mm -hmm. They are more invested than what the federal government is is showing us right now. And it was a real time example of yet again, the federal government abandoning their commitments to to native peoples. So even if you said, well, that was in the past, they're not going to do it again. No, they are literally doing it right now. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Wow. Um, you bring up that the institution of slavery was something that that was part of the Choctaw Nation. Um, and as I was I was reading through through the book and listening to you talk about it a little bit, I was I was just reminded of Ira Berlin's argument about how slavery looks different um, depending on you know what time period you're talking about, what geographic location you're talking about. And so I wonder if you could just briefly explain. You already hit it on it a little bit, but. Um, how was it that slavery got introduced into Choctaw Nation, and and what did did slavery look like in the Choctaw Nation um, that that may have been similar or different to what we typically assume of like mm-hmm. plantation style plantation style agriculture um, producing cotton? Yeah, so um, slavery exists among uh, indigenous populations long before the arrival of Europeans, uh, as I say to my students in class all the time. Um, people have been enslaving other people who look just like them from time immemorial. And what's different about the new world is that suddenly people are thinking of color coding enslavement, right? That targeting specific group, people of African descent for enslavement. So, uh, but this this older practice of, en- of enslavement among native populations, um, I, I would recommend looking at Christina Snyder's book, for instance, if you want to read more about that. But um, 
this older practice is different from what we see uh, when when Choctaws transition in the 18th century to enslaving people of African descent. And it's different in that um, enslaved people are usually uh, war captives, right? So folks that have been captured in the process of war, sometimes uh, mourning wars, meaning mourning, I feel sad, not mourning in the morning, right? (laughs) Where where people, where groups are specifically... um, making war in order to replenish their population, right? So it, in these, in this older, more traditional practice, you're enslaving people who are war captives. The enslavement isn't permanent. The slave enslavement isn't inherited, right? So mothers aren't passing it to their children. And the enslavement isn't, um, your labor isn't being used just for agricultural labor in this more traditional practice. So people can move out of enslavement. Sometimes people are enslaved, but then adopted into the family to replace a fallen or lost loved one. Right. So that's the traditional practice. So then what, with the arrival of um, Europeans and the introduction of the enslavement of people of African descent, you see this transition of, um, aiming enslavement, thinking of enslavement as something that only people of African descent can, uh, a status that only they can hold, using them for uh, those enslaved people for agricultural labor, permanent status, inherited status, right? So that's the 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 change, the difference. And in Choctaw Nation, um, enslavement so it's it's really interesting because there are some descriptions of slavery among native nations as being somehow more lenient, right? That enslaved people there um, in the 19th century are able to work more independently or that native um, enslavers aren't exercising as much authority over them, you know, giving them a little bit more freedom. I think people especially like to take the quote Oh, I'm totally going to not remember his name, but there's a, a narrative of an enslaved man who says, if I, if I had to be a slave, I would rather be the slave of an Indian, right? They have, they, they have more of the milk of human kindness. And so there's that way of thinking about what slavery might've looked like among native populations. But then you have the, the other part of the problem, which is, especially in kinship-based societies, which the Choctaws are um, figured matrilineal, matrilineally and are kinship-based, people outside of kin, like enslaved people, don't really have any rights or protections. And so things can be done to those people without any repercussion. And so that the authority um, can be much more total and the treatment can be much more brutal. Right. And so the um, example I always use in class is the example of um, an Indian agent. So an agent from the federal government that's among the Cherokees return Meigs and in, in the 19th century. And he writes in his report and he's kind of horrified by what he's seen. There's a, um, a Cherokee he describes it as a Cherokee woman who didn't like something that her enslaved uh, person, uh, an enslaved black person did. 
harangues her husband until he finally goes and kills this enslaved person, chops off his head. They throw the body in the river. And when the agent goes to the, to the couple and says, what are you doing? You, you can't do that. He writes that they're perplexed because they say, well, but he was a slave and he doesn't have any rights right? that they're bound to respect. And so I would describe the treatment that um, enslaved people in, in uh, to indigenous masters, the, the treatment that they might receive as much like the treatment that enslaved people in the broader South would re- might receive. That there's a continuum. It depends a lot on the master, right? The enslaver. It could be kinder. It can be really harsh, right? That there is a continuum. Um, what is different in the Choctaw Nation is that um, there are fewer laws to limit the behavior of enslavers. So, you know, in southern states, you'll find rules about. Um, in some states about too harsh punishment or, or the crime of murder. And you don't see that in the legislative record in the Choctaw Nation, right? So again, if you think about enslaved people being outside kinship and having this total control over these folks, then that, that makes sense, right? You also see similar laws that you see in Southern states that, you know, prohibiting, um, literacy or right or um interracial sex or those kinds of things so there are a lot of similarities as i said there's this perception of enslaved of native enslavers as being more lenient but wrapped in some of that perception is also some racism because some of the contemporary observers will say things such as oh well um that uh Indian master doesn't know how to control his slaves or those slaves are so lazy because he does, you know, he, he hasn't, that Indian master doesn't know what he's doing. Is it that that's what's happening or is it that there's some racism on the part of the commenter in that, right. In the 19th century, who's making an observation and and saying that. Were there notions of paternalism? So, I mean, however faulty or fraudulent that may have been for white Southerners to kind of, perceive their their enslaved people as extensions of their family and that there was some semblance of protection that they provided was that was that concept uh present in in native societies as well or was that something that was that was kind of just in in white southern society oh no you definitely see in some of the um uh a couple of letters from within the pitchland family who were um slaveholders you know a, a comment about Oh, similar to that, my family, black and white, right? <laughs> right. Or um, say howdy to the Negroes for me, right? Like that, that kind of thing. So there is, and, and also that same um, kind of surprise when enslaved people are running away or misbehaving, that same kind of, um, but I've treated them so well. Why would they do that, right? There, there is some of that same language there, yes. So um, I could spend the entire time talking to you about this decision to to side with the Confederacy or, or slavery in Choctaw Nation, and you do a really great job of kind of painting that picture and, and demonstrating the complexity behind the decision and the nuance behind the decisions and the role of, of slavery in Choctaw society. But I think another thing you do really well in this book uh, is 
you don't just stop the story there. You go into the experiences of of Choctaw people um, during the Civil War and Reconstruction. And so I'd like to spend a little bit of time just talking about that, since since that is one of the really fantastic things about this book is that you push those boundaries of of what we we assume the Civil War was about and where it was fought. Um, what was the Civil War like in in Indian Country in in present day Oklahoma, and and what role did the Choctaw play in in the Confederacy's attempts to to fend off the Union? Well, it's really interesting because some of the Native nations in their agreements to um, uh, fight with the Confederacy and the Choctaw is is one of them. Um, say that they can't be asked to go outside of Indian territory unless they give their ex- explicit permission to do so, right? So it's an interesting moment of asserting sovereignty, also asserting your support of the war. However, re- wanting the Confederacy to recognize, but our obligation is here first. Our obligation is here in Indian territory first. So um, I think the uh, based on what you see in um, the records, the military records that that I mine uh, for the book, it sounds like the the picture of the war that the soldiers give is that it's um, it would sound very familiar to people who study the Civil War in the South. They're poorly provisioned, right? Supplies supplies Despite don't all those up, promises, right? Right, exactly. Supplies don't show up as they should. Uh, promised, you know, clothing and food, etc., don't show up as they should. Then it's not, they the way. Um, they talk about it, it sounds like uh, periods of relative little action punctuated by these bursts of um, really frightening, uh, bewildering, um, dangerous battles. And then, you know, a stretch of kind of routine, uh, you know, activity. And then again, another punctuated by another moment of, of clashing troops and um, fierce fighting. So I think it that, that part of it would look very familiar to other folks who study the civil war or read about the civil war um, in the, in the larger South. Right. But the, they're so poorly provisioned that a white um, officer writes to a, uh, Confederate officials to to complain and say, if they don't support us anymore, it's it's our fault because we didn't give them the things that we promised to give them, even though they've been so loyal and supportive to us. Were were Choctaw fighters um, or warriors did 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 they travel outside of Indian country or or their own territory to engage in battles with with the Confederate military as well, or or did they largely stay confined um, to present day Oklahoma? They did travel out a little bit. Uh, the the, the um, example that people usually look at is is Tandy Walker takes some troops because um, he, he's cited as being a part of um, depredations made against colored troops, right? And you know the even some Southern observers are saying, "Wow, they were really ferocious and treated those." colored troops so badly, right? So there are moments when they're outside of Indian territory, but they really 
again, I, I just, I think it's, it's very um, instructive that they're so clear about wanting to have control over where they fight, right? That they're asserting their sovereignty um, in that way that they, they don't have to go unless they agree to go. And not, again, not all of the native nations have that written into their agreements with the Confederate government, that the Choctaws don't, you know, are, are clear about wanting to maintain that sovereignty. And I think that really builds on the argument that you made earlier about why they decided to side with the Confederacy at the outset, which was to protect their sovereignty. Um, and so it seems like at the very beginning, they are asserting that 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 right um, again and again and again. Um, so obviously, the Confederacy loses. Um, <laughs> the side that the Choctaw chose to ally with um, is defeated. Um, and and they also have to go through a period of reconstruction, much like the rest of the South. So in what ways did, did reconstruction unfold um, in in Indian territory and in the Choctaw Nation in particular? What did that look like? Um, was it also similar to to reconstruction across the South or was there something particularly unique about it? So what's really unique about what happens in Indian territory um, so the, the, they have to, all of these uh, native nations that side with the, with the Confederacy have to reestablish fr- friendly relations with the federal government. Um, they have to negotiate treaties with the federal government that include provisions for the abolition of, of slavery. And then for the inclusion of their formerly enslaved people into their um, polity. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that those people are going to be granted citizenship, that the freed people will be granted citizenship. So that kind of process is similar as to what happens in the American South. What's really different is that um, groups such as the Choctaw own land communally. And so that means that those freed people, when they become citizens in Choctaw Nation, are also going to have access to land, mm-hmm. which is very different than what happens in the American Absolutely. South, right? And um, Crystal Feimster, I was at a conference with her many, I don't know, in the before times. (laughs) (laughs) Which seems like forever ago. Right, Right, long ago. And she um, made a comment that, oh, so Indian Territory is a place where you could see what happens if freed people had been given land, right? If 40 acres of a, and a mule were not just a thing that we say now in the mm-hmm. present, but if 40 acres and, and a mule had been made a reality, if some kind of reparations were provided for um, newly emancipated people in the moment. So in Choctaw Nation, the, you know, the, the part of the treaty agreement is that they have to accept these folks as citizens, again, which is going to give newly emancipated people access to land. And the Choctaw Nation initially says um, that the the treaty uh, tells the federal government demands that they do this and then says, and we're, we're going to give you some funds for, for doing this. Right. Mm -hmm. And the Choctaw Nation's response is keep your money and take these people (laughs) (laughs) and take these people. Mm-hmm. So there's a period until um, about 1883 when they when they pass legislation to deal with this in the Choctaw Nation, where it's unclear what the status of those Choctaw freed people is mm-hmm. there. Um, so it would appear that many of them do uh, farm on plots of land 
unmolested, mm-hmm. but the federal government and the Choctaw Nation keep having this argument where the federal government says, well, but you haven't made provision for this. And the Choctaw Nation says, and you can take these people, right? <laughs> right. We're not going to make, we're answering. We are giving you an answer. And the answer is to take these people. And um, the the federal go- government has given them part of the money that they said you, you have, you know, after you've made provision for these people, we're giving you this money. And the federal government gave them part of the money before the Choctaw Nation made provision. So you can imagine from the perspective of Choctaw lawmakers, well, they don't mean it, mm-hmm, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We don't have to take action um, with these people. So the, as I said, it, it would appear that a lot of folks still actually farmed, a lot of freed people farmed and, and were there, but it's not until 1883 that it becomes um, explicit and clear legally, okay, these freed people will have citizenship rights. These are what citizenship rights entail. Mm-hmm. And they have access to um, uh, plots of land, right? That the, the the land that they can access is less than Choctaw citizens, you know, quote unquote, by blood. So it is different, but they do have access to land. And um, there's work by other scholars that suggests that some of these plots that freed people um, are able to um, receive and maintain in Indian territory are then going to be founding plots for some of the all black towns that emerge in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And that some of the, um, the founding plots that for Tulsa, for instance, yeah. and the Greenwood district are plots that were um, land obtained by freed people, right, from Native nations. So to go back to, you know, historian Crystal uh, Feimster saying, well, maybe this is an example of what could happen, right? Mm-hmm. There is a way in which there's an example of, um, there's something to be learned there about what can happen when newly emancipated people are given access to land and are able to farm it. Or um, I, I, I uh, find it really powerful when you um, read about uh, how even the idea of 40 acres and a mule emerged, you know, with special field order 15 mm-hmm. and um, Sherman's meeting with uh, a black minister at the time, I think um, Mr. Frazier, who says that freedom is the ability to till the land and enjoy the fruits of your labor, right? That's an amazing definition of freedom. I ask my students all the time, if I ask you to define freedom right now, how would you do it? I do that too. Right? Every single time. And the, the, the responses are just so wide ranging or there's just dead silence. Yeah, but it's never the freedom to own land and till it by your own hand and enjoy the fruits of your labor. They don't ever say something like that. Mm -hmm. So the idea that this is a moment in which for many people of African descent in um, the United States, that freedom would be so tied to the idea of land ownership, right? If you think about that in the moment of special field order 15 and then people in Indian territory people, newly emancipated people who are actually able to own land and till Mm -hmm. it by their own hand, right. And enjoy the fruits of their labor. That's it's power. It's a powerful way of um, thinking about how they're experiencing what emancipation means Mm -hmm. and 
then it does it's not hard to make the leap of how that those plots of land could lead to the development of places like Greenwood in yeah, Tulsa. Yeah. Right. Now I I end my book with the the flip side of that, the 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 negative is that then we see what happens in Greenwood. Yeah. Right? That the response to land ownership and, and economic success by these um, African Americans is sharp mm-hmm. and people, you know, white Tulsans aren't happy that, that this is the case. Right. But it does give you, um, again, there, there, there is something in reconstruction and in Indian territory that gives you an idea of what that could have looked like if people across the South, if newly emancipated um, people across the South had been given that access to land. Absolutely. You preempted most of my next questions about, um, you know, the all black towns that emerge in Oklahoma, which there are many, um, and Greenwood in, in, in particular. Um, but you're absolutely right. Even this, this, this opportunity that, that these newly emancipated people had in places like present day Oklahoma, uh, even that is fleeting, um, whenever it stokes the ire of, mm-hmm. of white Americans and, and, and Greenwood being perhaps uh, the best example of just how fleeting that that can be. Um, I, I wonder what what the the long term consequences for the Choctaw people and other native groups in in places like present day Oklahoma that decided to to join forces with the Confederacy if their if their concerns were over sovereignty. Um, what were the long-term consequences of that decision to to go against the federal government and then end up on the losing side of that battle? Were there were there any stark consequences for for their sovereignty? Oh, absolutely, because the federal government can then use this as a pretext to make inroads on native sovereignty, right? right. So part of the punishment can be you're going to have to give up more land, right? Part part mm-hmm. of the punishment can is that we can tell you who you have to make a citizen and who. Mm-hmm who you have to include, right? So that the um, the consequences, you know, we've talked mostly about what reconstruction in Indian territory means for people of African descent, but for the native population, again, this is the pretext for the federal government to um, really, I think in the view of many um, federal officials to punish native people for making the, for the wrong choice and the mm-hmm. war, right? That this is the way that you can punish them is by um, taking away parts of, of native sovereignty, you know, uh, taking away territory, demanding territory, right? So the consequences for those native nations are stark and mm-hmm. profound, right? In terms of, um, especially in terms of what it means for native sovereignty. Yeah. And especially when you think about the consequences for Southerners, um, for, for, you know, seceding and, and going to war with the federal government. Uh, it seems like those, those two consequences weren't necessarily similar, um, in terms of their outcomes, especially, uh, when you think about the sovereignty question. Uh, yeah. Well. And you know, one of the, if I might plug a, a former graduate student, yeah. of Jeff Fortney, I mean, he writes about the lack of, for instance, civil war monument building among native populations, yeah. right? That, that they're not relitigating and, <laughs> and and thinking about the civil war yeah. and commemorating things in the same way that other Southerners are, right? Because the consequences have different meanings for them. Right. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. And, you know, as, as you were saying that, I was thinking, like, I wonder if the sons of Confederate veterans would be terribly excited about 
um, reaching out to to Choctaw descendants or the flip, right? Would 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 Choctaw descendants be interested in that kind of, of organization based on the outcomes um, of the war? Um, well, we've got a little bit of time left, and I feel like I wouldn't be a historian if I didn't ask you something about sources. Um, in the beginning, you do a fantastic job of putting it all on the table uh, in terms of of what your goals were um, in finding sources. You really wanted to foreground Choctaw voices um, and experiences, but you note that that sometimes there are gaps that you have to try to fill in, and I think that's always an interesting question uh, that historians have to grapple with. So um, you you took this approach uh, of using something you called side streaming to fill in some of those gaps. I wonder if you could just briefly explain to some of our listeners um, what side streaming is and how you use that to to kind of um, complete the narratives and 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 the arguments that you were making. Yeah, so a really clear example is um, in that, for instance, I use a lot of um, WPA, Works Progress Administration mm-hmm. Slave Narratives. And uh, for people who aren't familiar, there are these interviews that are conducted by Um, the federal government um, in the wake of the Great Depression to put writers to work. And it's actually the the project comes out of work that was happening um, with Black scholars and historically Black institutions who had been going out and interviewing um, the survivors of enslavement, right, recognizing that they were getting older, you know, that their memories um, would be of value. And so, you know, the federal government sends folks out to interview formerly enslaved people. And now you can readily access these online if, if any of your listeners are interested. Or here at Rice University, you can go to the library and there's 50 volumes <laughs> <laughs> divided by state. So I use these WPA um, slave narratives because they get at the, the voice of enslaved um, people. Uh, but I, if I only used narratives that were left by people enslaved by Choctaws, I would have very few indeed. Mm-hmm. So instead, you know, you sidestream, you, you widen it so that you look at what's happening among enslaved people among the Cherokees or among the Chickasaws or among the Creeks or among the Seminoles, right? That you um, broaden your net and look at what's happening um, close by uh, geographically among native nations to try to fill in the gaps because you only have a few that are from um, people who had been enslaved by um, Choctaw natives. Mm-hmm. So that's one kind of example or thinking about um, uh, like if, if you're looking at what's happening legally in the Choctaw nation, you might also then again, go look at what's happening um, legislatively in the Cherokee nation to see what's, going on. Maybe they're borrowing laws from each other. Maybe the same kind of sentiment is, is mm-hmm. producing similar laws, right? So that, that kind of thing. It's really, it's really invaluable because otherwise it would be very, it would be really hard to try to, to um, paint a fuller picture of what's right. happening. Yeah. And the, as you said, I'm really interested in centering the voices of, of native people here and in the chapter on the, um, the in which I use a lot of the WPA stuff, centering the voices of enslaved people, right? Thinking mm-hmm. about um, the perspective of people that we don't always hear from in the historical narrative, 
Um, and then looking to see if it tells us something different when you listen to these other voices. Do they mm -hmm. have a different perspective? Does it reframe or reshape how we're thinking about these events that we think we know a lot about if right. we do that, right? And, you know, the other thing I would say about, especially thinking about the Civil War in the West, thinking about the Civil War in, in Indian Territory, is that a lot of the things that happen there, if you think about how the federal government is approaching, um, should these people be citizens of the United States? Right? Mm -hmm. Should Native people be citizens of the United States? Uh, how are you going to push them to accept formerly enslaved people as citizens? The, the kinds of questions that happen there are the same kinds of questions that the federal government is dealing with, thinking about addressing with its own enslaved population, right? So that you can see the echoes of what's happening there, shaping some of what's happening mm -hmm. in federal policy in other parts of the of the United States. And so do you think it's fair to say that because you relied on the process of side streaming in some cases, uh, that the experience of enslaved people uh, across native nations, at least in, in the Southeast, were very similar? I think there are a lot of similarities, yeah. Uh, okay. th though a lot of um, scholars who look at the the, the so-called five civilized tribes in quotes, right, mm -hmm. um, often will talk about uh, the native nations as on a kind of continuum in terms okay. of what slavery looks like. Usually, people will put the Seminoles on the the least harsh, right, and then have a continuum in which the Chickasaws are on the most harsh, right? Okay. So there, there's some variation there, right? In terms of um, overall what people think uh, slavery looked like in the, in the native nations. But um, there are some similarities that we can see across them. Okay. Wonderful. Um, well, uh, I'll, I want to ask you one last question, and and that is kind of big picture stuff. So you've got this fantastic book. You kind of delve into to these very specific histories of the Choctaw people, and and you illuminate the experience of um, some enslaved people in in Choctaw Nation, and and some particular Choctaw people uh, like Peter Pitchlin a lot. Um, but like big picture stuff, um, what do you hope readers take away from this book? Um, like if you if you could narrow it down to like one or two things, just when they finish your book, you hope they they take what away? Oh, gosh, that is a great question. And people can already your listeners already know I'm a wordy person. So <laughs> to break things oh, down, please don't though. think you're too terribly wordy. There, there are wordy people. You're <laughs> fantastic. Things, yeah. To break things down to what's um, well, what I hope. What I'm always striving for in my in my classes with my students and in my my scholarly work is I want student uh, readers or students to come away saying, "Oh, I never knew that. Mm -hmm. I never thought about that." Right? Like so the first part is I want it to be something new. Um and then the the second thing I would say is that I I want people to have a sense that the the question of race is far more complicated than we might imagine, mm -hmm. right? That um, how we think about race has really changed a lot over time that um, I, in the U S it's, we tend to focus on this, the black white dichotomy that there's right. this line and we ignore all of these other groups that are, that have been here before the beginning. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. 
groups that have been here before the beginning. And so I, I hope that another part of what people see is not just that race is complicated, but that we need to think about other groups and what their perspective might be. And I guess the third thing um, that I hope folks get out of out of the book is that um, the United States is not always the center of the story. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's, let's think a little bit more capaciously about um, the history that happens in this country and that it's, it's not always just this uh, American story that Mm -hmm. other groups are here, other um, they're participating in really important ways that, that it's, you know, I just, I want to decenter the United States a little bit and, and think a, a little bit more broadly. Well, I can say with with 100% confidence, you achieved those three goals and more. As I mentioned to you when we were speaking earlier, my wife, who who is not a fan of reading history books, saw the cover of your book and asked me to explain it very briefly and was absolutely enthralled by it um, and, and the arguments that you put out there. I think that central question of why in the world did the Choctaw side with the Confederacy is one that... Um, Anybody who hears is all of a sudden going to be incredibly fascinated by. So, um, again, congratulations on a fantastic book. I absolutely enjoyed every single page of it. Um, so, Professor Yarbrough, thank you so much for being on the show, on the podcast. Uh, again, listeners, the book is Choctaw Confederates, the American Civil War in Indian Country. Uh, it is now available through UNC Press, and I'm assuming every other online retailer, if, if you are interested in pursuing it through those routes. Um, so, again... Thank you for being on on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.